to John chapter 2. We're going to read the last two verses of chapter 2 and then the first three verses of chapter 3. So that would be chapter 2, 28 through 3, 3. So now is the point I like to remind you. This, of all the things, of singing, of even prayer, of fellowship together, um, even the, the sermon afterwards, all the things that we're doing, the most important thing we're going to do today is open God's word and read it together and hear from it together. This is another thing, you know, as I was talking about while, we're, while we were praying, that this is our time to gather on Sunday mornings is, is the most heavenly experience you will have all week long in truth because the gathering of God's people to hear God's word is what heaven is all about, right? That we will be in his presence. And so we, we practice that on Sunday mornings and we fumble through and things sometimes go awkwardly and sometimes, you know, we got to do this or do something differently and all those things happen. But particularly when we come to the opening up of God's word and we look at it and we hear it um, appeal to the sense of sight and to the sense of sound, um, we are practicing and reminding ourselves that God has spoken, that he is still speaking through his word to us even today, and that one day we will be in perfect fellowship with him. And that's part of what John talks about in this passage today. So it's an especially important time to highlight that to ourselves this morning. Okay, are you there? First John chapter 2, verse 28. I'll read 28 through 3, 3. And now, little children, abide in him, so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shriek, shrink from him in shame at, at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God, and so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. Will you bow your heads and pray with me, please? Lord, as we've confessed earlier, we need you in order for this time to be redeemable, in order for this to not just be a religious exercise or a routine or just another part of our week as though this is uh, similar to going to the grocery store or to uh, whatever other thing we might do. Although we live lives that are meant to be offered up to you every moment as an act of worship, this is a special time, Lord, where we have gathered together with the explicit purpose of hearing from you. So, Lord, would you open up our hearts to receive what you have to say to us as a congregation, as a small microcosm of the larger church that you have made over 2,000 years in the making, as individual families, as individual people here gathered with totally unique circumstances that we need to apply the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ to every aspect of our lives. Lord, help us now as we discuss abiding in relationship with Christ. We need your help for this. And so I ask you for it now in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this morning, um, you can see the title up here. 
Uh, if I, and this is actually something I wanted to mention um, before, and I had forgotten. Um, we were passing out little, uh, little sermon booklets um, during our time at Crosspoint at home. And if you didn't get one of those and you'd like one, please let me know because they're really not hard to print off. Um, and just because we're you know, coming into the third chapter out of five doesn't mean it's too late for those. So if you would like one, please let me know. Um, but otherwise, we won't be printing our usual sermon outline in the bulletin like we usually do. Um, so these, this is going to be kind of, I'm going to give you the outline here in a second um, as far as, uh, I'll, actually, I'll just leave that up there right now. That'll be great. So if you want to write that down, if, if taking notes is helpful to you, or if you just like to give your 100% attention to God's word, um, hopefully those, are, those things are helpful to you. But um, as, as you saw earlier, abiding children, growing and waiting. So this is a part one. We'll look at verses four through 10 next week. And that is a sort of part two of the same heading of being children of God. But today we're gonna talk about growing and waiting. Two of your favorite things to do, right? Who doesn't love waiting for something? I was at McDonald's the other day. I know you're surprised to find out that I eat McDonald's, right? But I do. And we pulled into the drive-thru. And you know how they have that two-lane thing right now? It is. Thank you. It's ridiculous. Because you know what happens is there's two entrances. And so you get up there, and there's a point where when you do it the right way, you're in line, and you get a choice based on how progress is going to say, I'm going to go to the outside lane or the inside lane. This is a really dumb sermon illustration. I'm sorry. It's not even going to be that helpful. But about waiting, okay? And what happens is the entrance is on the other side, and people just come in, and they bypass the whole line that you've created behind you, cut right ahead of you, and get into whatever lane they want to. And so that happened to me the other day. I know. Persecution, right? It's terrible. But... I, the, so, so one person got in and I was like, oh boy, and Sarah was there, my, my conscience, you know, was there to remind me, hey, this is not worth getting upset about, but I was like, no, this is totally worth getting upset about, because there have been five or six other things that have really frustrated me today, and I was just waiting for the last straw, and then this other kid comes up in a truck and does the same thing, but even worse, because he came behind me and then got ahead of me, and I just thought, oh, and I never... Um, wave or try to go like this or anything like that. I'm like, I grip the steering wheel when I'm frustrated. Just like Holy Spirit restrain my body language so that I don't misrepresent Christ, at least in the eyes of other people, though you see my heart. But I couldn't help it. I was like, what? And I, I looked at him like, really? Like that, is that how this works? Like you can just go whoop and, and then like, so then he rolls his window down and immediately I, I retract everything. Like, oh, no, never mind. No, I'm, I'm so, you know what? You could do whatever you want. That's okay. I don't actually want to talk to you about this. But he rolls his window down, and then he says, hey, I just wanted to apologize. The person in the parking lot right next to me was trying to get out and was about to run into me, and I had to quickly make a move and get out of the way. I was like, oh, thank you. That's really good to know. And I appreciated that he even told me. But waiting is a hard thing to do. And you wait better as you grow, right? Because all you mature Christians out there who are thinking, oh my goodness, this guy's our pastor. He can't even handle McDonald's. Like, what is wrong with him? And I know, you're, I know that you might be thinking, like, this is a minuscule thing. And that's because you've been growing. It's because there's growing that's happening that allows you to wait better, right? Waiting makes more sense. It's more doable as you grow and as you mature and as you become more Christ-like, 
And this is what John is, is leading us into in the beginning of this passage. Little children, abide in him so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. So this idea of abiding, obviously it's the title series, title of our series, but beyond that, it's something we've seen multiple times already in 1 John, and we'll continue to see it more and more. So why does John keep saying this, and does it make any difference that he said it? Just look at your Bibles at verse 27 of chapter 2. At the very end, that last dash, just as it has, been, just as it has taught you, abide in him. And then what does John say after that? A very profound thing. And now, little children abide in him. And you're like, okay, listen, I know you're writing the Bible here, but you just said that. Well, okay, let's take like one of our very basic principles of Bible interpretation. And remember when something's repeated, why is it repeated? Because it's important. It's emphasis. I mean, come on, we know this, right? We do this all the time. Clean your room, clean your room, right? You repeat it with emphasis here. He's not giving that sort of like disciplinary emphasis here, but there is emphasis. There's also an additional meaning in this because what we talked about previously and try to try to remember a few weeks back now, the last time we were in 1 John, we were talking about abiding in Christ in regards to who he truly is and abiding in the truth of who Christ is and not allowing false teaching to come in and warp our perspective of him because not only believing in Jesus matters, but believing in the right Jesus matters. And we know this from his own mouth in the Gospels when he said, many will come and say, I am him, but do not believe them. Okay, well, how am I supposed to know? How do I know when somebody's preaching something that's true and preaching something that's false, regardless of whether they, they come up and say, hey, I'm Jesus, or they present a Jesus that doesn't match with Scripture? Oh, that's the key. What is it that we've seen in God's word? What has, the, what has the apostle John already taught us? And that he's writing this letter now to say, hey, look, there's no new secret knowledge that's going around. There, that's not from God. The truth that you heard is what you need to be established in and abide in that truth. Now we're talking about abiding in a relationship with Christ. Okay, so for Bible study purposes, look at verse three at the end of the section we're gonna look at here. And of course, by verse three, I mean verse two. What we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, what will happen? Can you guys just say it? We shall be like him. When he appears, we're going to be like him. You see where growth is, is in the beginning and at the end of this section that we're already looking at? Abide in him so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame. Why is that warning even existing right now? Because there are some of us in the church from the beginning all the way through to the end, there are some of us who will think, and maybe some of us even today, maybe even me sometimes, I'm thinking about the return of Christ and going, oh boy, that's right, he could come back any time. And when he comes... Everything's going to be different. And I've never seen the guy before. I mean, I pray and I talk and I talk to him and I, I read his word and I know other people who know him, but what's it going to be like to actually see Jesus face to face? John says, abide in him so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink back. There's a, there's a possibility that when Christ returns, some of his people might not immediately say, yes, let's go. Instead, they might go, what's going on? Oh, right, that's Jesus. Oh, and that's a good thing, right? We do, John doesn't want our first reaction to be fear or uncertainty, but confidence. Confidence in that he will return and that we will not shrink back in shame, but we will know him. Let's talk about growth again, because there's something that needs to happen in between here, right? 
You know, growth is intimidating for some of us, particularly when we consider things like verse 29. It says, if you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. It's very easy, perhaps, for some of us to say, wow, I have to practice righteousness in order to abide in Christ? What if I mess up? How much righteousness do I need? How many good works? How many times that I I recognize my sin and repent? Or how many times that I I miss that? What's this look like? It might be intimidating or overwhelming. If my abiding in Christ depends on my action, I'm completely hopeless. We try to turn a standard screw with a Phillips screwdriver when we have that mentality. We do it completely backwards. We try to apply what we have to the situation that we have no hope of repairing or dealing with. We only can trust in the good news of Jesus Christ. Paul says that that is what is the power of God unto salvation. The enemy's tool that he wants to use is guilt. Guilt is what the power of sin is, Paul says in the book of Romans as well. Guilt is the power of sin. The enemy wants to use guilt to stall your growth. Do you know that if you're in Christ, the enemy's goal is to stop you from growing in him, to stop you from acting on what you know, because he knows that you're his and he can't do anything about that, but he can sure try to stop you from doing anything about it and from making any impact around you. The Holy Spirit, however, will convict us as well as empower us to respond to that conviction that he gives us of what sin is, of what righteousness is, and how we should respond. And to do all of that in confidence, not in fear, not in in shaking and shrinking away from him, but boldly entering into his presence and trusting that even to the point of his return, we'll be confident as we are with him. John shows us that the truth of growth is planted in the wonder of his love, watered with the assurance of his work, and springs up in glorious hope of Christ's return. And so that's kind of your outline here. Hopefully I've given you plenty of time if you are hoping to write this down um, to get that there. So let's go back again to verses 28 and 29, the call to growth. So in 28, abide in relationship. This is, again, different than how he was talking before about abiding in the truth. He's saying now abide in knowing Christ, not just knowing about him, but knowing him. Kind of like how we talk about the difference between believing in God and believing God. You know the difference, right? The demons even believe believe in God, right? They know he exists, but do they believe God's word? Do they obey God's word? Do they live in light of it? No. Only redeemed, blood-bought believers can live in light of the good news of Jesus Christ. And that's what John is calling us to do from today to the point of his return. John Stott says that Christians live from appearing of Christ to appearing of Christ. We live from the moment that he first appeared in our lives to change us and to make us his. And the next stop, or the rather the end goal is the second appearing of Christ. And I wonder how often you consider that. I wonder how often that's on your mind as you go about your day, perhaps even as you make your plans. It's not hyper-religious to even as you're planning lunch, be reminded that lunch might not come today, right? That's just the truth. And John wants us to be ever confident so that we won't shrink from him in shame, but that we'll be excited, that we'll look forward to it, that, that we won't say, oh, Jesus is here, but I didn't get to blank. I didn't get to 
finish that house project. I didn't get to see my kids grow up and go to college. I didn't get to whatever that thing might be. John says, this is the end goal, the appearing of Christ. And what happens in the middle is growth. So what is this confidence? In a way, this confidence is our faith applied to our perspective. It's what gives us the natural reflex of drawing near to him as he returns, rather than shrinking away from him in shame. You know, this idea of drawing near and shrinking away is really a picture of the whole status of humanity. Is that in the garden when Adam and Eve sinned and their sin was passed on to us, we grow, we are born into this world ready to run away and hide from God at every moment. One of the things, I know I talk about the Jesus Storybook Bible a lot, but if you don't have it, it's one of the most important theological books I think you can get, okay? Because one of the constant themes about sin in the Jesus Storybook Bible is running away from God. And we just read that last night in the passage about Isaiah in there. And, and that's how, they, this is how the author um, writes to children to help them understand what sin is. They're shrinking away from him. And so even this, this warning here, of, well, let's not shrink away from him, is a call to repent from whatever might keep us from embracing him fully. But this confidence is our reason, our, our hope, our power that the Lord has given us to draw near to him the way a sunflower naturally faces the sun all day long. This becomes our great goal of growing and abiding him relationally. As we make our home with Christ, we grow in knowing and actually becoming like him in the process. Verse 29, John says, if we look at this backwards for a second here, he says, everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. So to work backwards, being born of him results in practicing righteousness. Okay, Don't let the order of this confuse you. This is not a one, two, three chronological thing, okay? It's not, if you practice righteousness, that means you've been born of him. It's those who are born of him do what? Practice righteousness, right? So that with this, verse 29 comes a warning and a directive. Because remember, he's talking in the context of these false teachers that are coming in and sharing, hey, there's actually a new, there's a deeper knowledge. There's, there's new ways to look at sin, new ways to accept sin, and re, you know, realize like sin doesn't really matter all that much. But John says, no, sin does matter because righteousness matters. And only those who are born of God can practice righteousness. It's, again, easy to be discouraged at a passage like this. This is where the test of obedience that John gives us can feel like condemnation. I wonder if this word on righteousness sounds to you like God is trying to push you away. But if we remember, our problem is not that God is pushing us away. Our problem initially is that we're running away from him, apart from Christ. We can't. It is impossible. And we know that because we're good gospel-believing Christians, right? We know that only Christ's righteousness can count for mine. But we sometimes forget that we are meant to grow in the practice of that by being in deeper consistent relationship with him. It's not a matter of increasing our knowledge about him. John dealt with the importance of that before. But now we're talking about familiarity with Christ, not as an idea, not as a theological topic, but as a person, as a person who is not distant, but who is near, whether we feel that way all the time or not. John is drawing a dividing line between those who want to abide with Christ and those who do not. Righteous practice comes from the presence of Christ in the life of the children of God. 
So it is not a matter of simply saying, you know, I really, I, I'm really, really good at practicing righteousness. I don't really need any help, so I must be doing okay. And it's not a matter of saying, okay, well, if I'm going to practice righteousness, I need to be perfect, and I know I can't, so I'm not even going to try. What John's calling us to is to say, embrace relationship with Christ and do what with righteousness? So we haven't addressed this yet. Practice righteousness. It doesn't say perfect righteousness. It's just to practice it. We know what practice is, right? It's where you go to mess up doing the thing before the game or before the real event or whatever it might be, right? You go there and you learn. And you, you fall down and you miss kicking the ball and you do all those kind of things because you are practicing, okay? Now, this practice is bigger than just, you know, a sports practice. There's, this is the idea of your life direction, right? Of, of my practice, my habits, my, my methods of living life work towards righteousness. But I think it's helpful for us to consider a sports practice because that's more like what we ought to be doing than what we think sometimes. That we think sometimes, if, I, if I'm looking at how I know if I'm really a believer and if I'm really abiding in Christ, and I see stuff like, he who practices righteousness has been born of him, and I start thinking, oh my goodness, I might not be good enough, then we've missed the point. God wants us to be growing. And what does he call us in the beginning of this? Look down at it again. I know that sounds silly because you know I'm going to say it, but I want you to see these words. And now, little children, abide in him. Don't you hear the implication of growth even in the title? What are children supposed to do? Make a big mess, destroy everything, and eat all your food. No, they're supposed to grow. That's the goal. That's why they stay in our houses for so long. Because they need help growing. And guess what? As a child of God, you don't ever become an adult of God. Because look at even John. We've seen John say little children before, right? And you hear the affection in his voice. He's a much older saint. But here he says, now little children abide in him so that when he appears, we may have confidence. And then see in verse 1, see what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God. John recognizes, even in his old age, he might have been in his early 90s at this point, he recognizes that he is still a child of God and therefore has room to grow. The point in this verse is that we ought to be active in this. We are not just simply passive recipients, right? We, we are recipients of grace, but it's not as though we take it and hold it and just stand and just wait for him to come pick us up. Do you remember the picture in the beginning of Acts when Jesus ascended and he said, hey, I'm coming back, you're going to receive power and you'll be my witnesses and all that kind of stuff's going to happen. And they're all standing there and what do they do? Do they turn around and go into Jerusalem and do what he says? No, they stand there staring at the sky going, Is anybody, did he say he was coming back now? Or no, I thought he said that we needed to go somewhere. No, I don't think he said that. You know, can you imagine the conversation going on that caused angels to come down and say, hey, he said go wait in Jerusalem. Get in there and start waiting. Takes some growth. Takes some patience. Takes the work of God. But we need to be active, not simply holding our place, bunkering down, but being about the work that God has for us. Because this righteousness is practicing and even training in righteousness, not for our benefit only, but for the benefit of people around us. Because the things that you are being trained in, that God is shaping you individually to do and to do better for his glory, are tools in your hands to draw people to Christ. And we'll get to that at the appropriate time here. So I will stop. <laughs> okay, so verse one, born by the wonder of his love. 
in love God has said we are and made us his children. So I want you to look at the verbs in verse 1 here. Those are the action words, in case you're not sure. Um, Verse 1, see what kind of love the Father has given to us. We're starting with see. John is, there was a commentator I read that that said that this was... um, this is John's parentheses. Three, one through three is actually just all a parenthetical um, notion from what his main argument is. But I think it's an important one for sure. And of course the um, commenter did too. But John stops for a second and he says, do you see what kind of love? And he doesn't say, have you seen or are you going to see? This is the present tense. Are you seeing the kind of love the father has given to us? Okay, and that's the next verb, given. He has enacted this new nature on us. He has given his love to us. I don't know if you remember that. I know we talk about the love of God, but I wonder if you remember when you think about what God has done in your life to make you his, if you remember that he's done that in love. He didn't say, okay, my son died for you. You better not mess this up. This is serious. I'm gonna give you a new nature. And if you do one thing to disappoint me again, I'm out. I'm unadopting you. He doesn't say that. And yet we act like that so often with our sin. We need to be serious about our sin. We need to be sorrowful over our sin. We need to repent of our sin. But we cannot be left in the mud and the mire of our sin such that it would stop us from moving forward and being about the work that he has for us. God has given this love to us. We didn't make it happen. Your faith, your response is not a work that was the missing piece of the puzzle that unlocked God's salvation in your life. What was Jesus' last phrase on the cross, somebody? It is finished. Not it has begun, right? It is finished. What I came up here to do is done, and I've saved my people. Mission accomplished. He doesn't leave any room for us to say, and as long as everybody responds then my mission, no, God's mission is accomplished at the cross. Even if, and this is not the situation at all, obviously, but even if nobody would have repented and believed in Christ, his mission was still accomplished because he did what he set out to do. He won, he defeated sin and death. And praise God, he does not leave our salvation at the cross, but he takes it. The Holy Spirit takes up this great salvation, this infinite worth, and has applied it to the hearts of all who believe in Christ and have made them children of God. Look what he has given to us that we should be called. And here is God's declaration over you. He calls you his children. Do you love moms and dads? Do you love saying, that's my kid? Sometimes I know you may not love it that much, but you've had those moments, right? Where you've said, that's my kid. I love him. Have you met my my son? Have you met my daughter? Do you know them? I think they're great. They're mine, right? You you know that feeling, that that good pride, as it were, for lack of a better word, that that sense of, of love and affection and joy over your children. And so has God called you. See what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God. Do you know about Benjamin in Genesis chapter 35? You know, when Benjamin was born was a terrible time. He was the son of Israel, of Jacob, and of his wife, Rachel. And Rachel passed away in the birth of Benjamin. And when he was born, Rachel named him Ben-Oni, which means son of my sorrow. In Genesis 5, 35, 18 says that Ben, uh, sorry, that 
Israel, Jacob, in that moment quickly took his son and renamed him Benjamin, son of my right hand. He's given him a name that is not based on the sorrow, the legitimate sorrow of the moment. It was a terrible moment. Can you imagine? This is not, well, it's not over-spiritualized, for lack of a better phrase again. Um, these stories in the Bible where we kind of just read them mechanically, Jacob is mourning. He loved Rachel, right? Way more than he loved Leah. And Rachel's passing away in this moment, but he takes the second to say, no, we're not going to call him son of my sorrow. He's the son of my right hand. He has a place of honor. He has a position of, of, of respect and of love. This is what I'm giving to my... And so I bring up that illustration to say that what God has done is he's changed our name from one that was being a son of sorrow, sons of disobedience, the Bible calls us in the New Testament, and he calls us the son of my right hand, children of God, even greater than the name Benjamin. And then the last verb in there, which is a minor verb, but it's important because John says it, and he says it on purpose, that we should be called children of God, and so we are. I don't know about you, but I've gone through seasons, and I'm sure i got seasons ahead of me of wondering, am I a child of God? Am I real? Am I legit? Am I just putting on a show up here? Or is there something really going on? Is God really working in my life? I ask myself those questions. And these are the kind of verses that I go to, and it just fills me with overwhelming joy. Because what he says here is, see what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God, and so we are. Why am I a child of God? Because God has given me this love, because he has called me his child. And so has he for you, believer. Look at Isaiah 43, verses 11 through 13. I put this up here so that you can just read it. Jeff, I think something's wrong with my clicker. I'm going to trust in you this morning for that. Uh, I skipped Galatians 3.3. That's okay. We're running out of time. Can you move forward? (laughs) Thank you. All right. Isaiah 43.11-13. I, I am the Lord, and besides me there is no Savior. I declared and saved and proclaimed when there was no strange God among you, and you are my witnesses, declares the Lord, and I am God. Verse 13. Also, henceforth... He says, this is a great word. Henceforth, I am he. There is none who can deliver from my hand. I work, and who can turn it back? I don't know if you have moments where you remember the first time you read a certain Bible verse, and it sticks out in your mind, but this is one of those moments that I can see the page of my little New American Standard pocket-sized Bible sitting on campus at Kent State University with all sorts of people walking around beside me and thinking as I went to it, oh, man, am I... Am I, am I God's sheep? Am I his? Do I know? How can I know if I'm really? And somehow, I don't know how I ended up in Isaiah 43 that day. But verse 13 smacked me in my face in a good way, in a very kind and loving way, but in a transformative way. If God's done something, can anybody say, oh, God, did, I'm going to just turn this around real quick. I'm going to undo that work. Can even the person upon which the work has been done undo the work of God? Please say no. Absolutely not. And what great joy comes from that. We are secure children of God. God has caused this new life in us. Who can undo what he's done? He's done the saving. We have nothing to boast of. We have nothing within ourselves to rely on. John wants to drop anchor on a solid assurance of our knowing Christ. He's not weighing anchor on your accomplishments, but on the work of Christ. Look at this quote from Gary Burge, a Bible scholar, New Testament scholar, in the next slide. 
He says, cosmetic change appears in our lives in response to threat. It appears in response to threat. Permanent change comes to us when we are safe and assured in God's love. This safety must be anchored in the objective work of Christ on the cross. So again, this assurance and this safety that he's talking about here is not about our own doing. It's not about, okay, I am assured because did you see I went to church today? Or did you see that I did the thing? Or I'm part of this ministry? Or I prayed a long time? Or I read through the Bible plan? No. When we let threat and fear motivate us wrongly apart from the gospel because there is a healthy fear that the Bible talks about, right? Let's not set that, let's not forget that because the Bible does say that the beginning of wisdom is the fear of the Lord. But in this case, if we allow fear alone to motivate us, we will not have perfect, permanent, but cosmetic change, just surface and temporary. But real permanent change comes when we recognize who God is and what he has done for us don't feel like his child sometimes if the truth of what god has done in christ for you moves you to wonder then those moments of not feeling like his child will slowly lose their power it's not as though temptation is gone for us but rather they, that temptation loses its power as we lean on the truth if we feel that even now if you're thinking this and you're thinking yeah but i'm still just not sure guess what you need to do you need to repent and if you're concerned about your status as a child of God, that could be a good thing. Far worse would it be the person who is, tone, who is just totally tuned out and is done with this passage and ready for lunch and isn't thinking at all about the weightiness of eternity and their relationship with Christ. But if you're sitting here and you're examining and you're thinking, you're like, boy, I, what, what do I have to see that, that, that is the fruit of what Christ has done to me? That is a good thing. That's where we ought to be. But if we fear, if we are concerned, then come back to abiding in relationship with Christ. Do what we learned in 1 John 1, where he says to confess your sins and that he will cleanse you from all unrighteousness and forgive you of that sin. And then walk in the light as he is in the light. I mean, this, this, the, this great evidence of relationship with God should be shown in our desires even more strongly than in our actions. Because a lot of time our actions don't reflect our true desires, right? But if we have a desire to know him because we've tasted and seen that he is good, that's really strong evidence. Look at this quote from John Calvin, too, to go back even further. Calvin wrote, and I have this in my office, actually. This is something I read often to myself, and I felt that it would be helpful today. God thoroughly approves our desires as the thoughts of his own spirit. Do you remember before um, our last passage in 1 John, we talked about that anointing that teaches us all things, and that, it, that anointing of the Holy Spirit in our lives that is who we need to stay secure in the truth. So it is in our hearts as well that the Holy Spirit works to shape our desires. And so when you say something like, Lord, I want to know you more, Calvin says that that desire, God approves it thoroughly as the thought of his own spirit because it's in line with his spirit. So our heavenly father will not refuse to satisfy yearnings, which by his own spirit, he has put within you. I want to know Jesus more. I want to be better about reading my Bible. I want to have more serious time of prayer. I want to share the gospel more often. I want to be with other believers. Those kind of things, if those are genuine desires in your heart, don't wonder if God is going to satisfy those desires. He put them there in the first place. He didn't give them to you to say, yeah, well, I'm going to give you that and then just let you sit there and want it. But he delights to satisfy us in Christ. All right, 
Let's move on here to this next phrase in verse 1. He says that we should be called children of God, and so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. So this great love that we've been describing is unknown to the people around us. You know, we, we live in a society where, you know, the, the focus is not so much about change or about growth, so much as it is about bettering ourselves or of um, rather, you know, just <laughs> actually just understanding ourselves or finding ourselves a little bit better. But what God calls us to as he intervenes in our lives is not to find ourselves. He's already found us. He's already defined who we are apart from Christ and who we are in Christ. Look at Jeremiah 17, 9 through 10. Jeremiah writes, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? I, the Lord, search the heart and test the minds to give every man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his deeds. You know, our, our culture's goal to find itself and to understand him or herself better and to discover him or herself, it's unattainable. Only God can truly know our hearts because apart from him, our hearts are just deceitful and wicked and they're un ununderstandable, unrelatable, un unknowable. But Christ has seen all of who we are and still gone to the cross to make a change in our lives. Let's go to verse two. So we've been born of the wonder of his love. Now we're nourished by his work. John says, now we are God's children now. And what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. God has done it. The world doesn't get it. And at the end of the verse, John says he doesn't even understand the extent of what we will be. You know, when you see Jesus and you're transformed in that moment in the twinkling of an eye, everything's going to be radically different. And yet John here, the apostle himself, knows that that's true, but he has no idea what to expect. It's a great mystery. Just like the mystery of the world that we live in that doesn't understand who we are or why we are the way that we are. We're completely different and, and made new in Christ. Sometimes, and a lot of the times on the surface, we look very much the same as the world, but it doesn't take long, hopefully, as you get to know a child of God to realize there's a drastic difference between a person who knows Christ and who does not know Christ, who has a relationship with him. And yet John says that the wonder of being God's child right now isn't even anything to compare to what we will be when he fully comes, when he returns to take us to himself. It will reveal what we are meant to be, what the completed work of Christ at the cross fully applied to us will bring. So sunflowers, we talked about them earlier, right? They follow the sun, right? They track with the rising sun through the day and the side of the stem that faces the east grows and so the movement is not simply left to right, but upwards. Because you know this, right? It follows as the sun moves across the sky. And so I, I looked into this a little bit this past week, and I learned that the, um, the side of the plant um, on the east that faces the sun grows during the day. And then at nighttime, the, um, the side that faces the west grows during the night so that it can reposition itself. So it's actually created to do that movement. It's not, I don't know, I, I think you know, Plants don't have minds. They don't think for themselves, right? But this is kind of the plant that you would wonder, right? Like, well, what's going on here? He's looking like this and then following the sun the whole day. Does he know what he's doing? It's actually not about the sunflower knowing what it's doing. It's about the nature of the sunflower itself. Its whole goal biologically is to ever be facing the sun and ready for its appearing the next morning. So photosynthesis is happening, that process of turning sunlight into energy. 
and it's going on so that that side might grow and then the other side might grow and all of that being done because of the energy of seeing the sun. The growth is happening on the inside and causing us to see the growth on the outside. There's evidence of inward growth. And sunflowers grow really tall, right? Six feet or more. Some of you have sunflowers. I know we, we grew some for ourselves. And here's a really depressing story. I don't know if you've had one before that has just kind of given up the will to follow the sun. But it's amazing because you would think maybe that would happen earlier on. So you just see the shorter sunflowers doing this. But we had a sunflower that surpassed me very quickly. And unfortunately, its proximity to my house, I think, was its greatest harm because it wasn't long before the sunflower that was straight up suddenly faced straight down. I mean, like literally, like the face was just looking at the ground like that. And you had to come home to that every day and be like, boy, I feel like that sunflower today. It was sad. It was as if the sunflower was staring at the ground trying to figure out what it's supposed to do or what it's supposed to be. How can you really be a sunflower looking at the ground? probably be called a ground flower or something it's something totally different your nature your nature says something completely different than your actions he's not practicing what it is to be a sunflower he's doing something else and it doesn't look right well the appearance of the sunflower reminds us of the sun as well with its brilliant yellow colors but you don't get that great color if it's not getting energy right and so eventually when the sunflower drooped we had to put it out of its terrible misery and put ourselves out of the misery of watching it. It was done. It had no life left in it because it wasn't looking at the sun. Do you get the silly illustration? You are a sunflower, brother and sister. You are meant to look at the S-O-N, capital S-O-N, the son of God, and to be energized, to be in relationship. That sunflower is nothing without the sun in the sky. And you are nothing without the Son of God intervening and empowering your life, changing you as he moves from east to west in your life. And sometimes you're following him, and sometimes there's nighttime where you go, I don't know where he is, I don't know what to do, and I didn't gather enough energy, and oh my goodness, what's going to happen? But what happens? The next morning comes and the sun rises and Christ returns to us, even in those times that we feel barren and distant from him, because he has indeed never left or forsaken us. John says, when he appears, we shall be like him. And that's what I meant to say as far as the sunflower looking in a way like the sun, right? Shining those beautiful yellow petals in a way like the sun does, but at the same time, dramatically different, right? We're going to be like him, but we will never be a copy of Christ. We will be like him the way a sunflower is like the sun, People will be able to look at it and say, that's one of the most recognizable flowers. Even Nick can tell you that that's a sunflower. Why? Because it looks like a sun, kind of. But you get the idea. It reflects what the energy that it's absorbed, and it points you to the greater thing. And that is what will happen with us. And there's still mystery to that, though. What will that be like? We'll have to wait and find out. So that's what John says. We shall see him as he is, as the sunflower sees the sun we will see the Son of God. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. And so that last section today, verse 3, living in the hope of his return. So we come back to this active portion, just like we had at the beginning. Practice righteousness. Hope in him. Practice righteousness. You'll be born of God. Hope in him, and you'll be pure. That's the great misunderstanding of these verses, right? 
But let's remember at the beginning, if you, are, if you have been born of God, you will practice righteousness. If you are pure, you will hope in him. And that purity will be evident and you will purify yourself in that way, not in the way that says, okay, Christ has done something. All I have to do is ponder it and suddenly I will enable myself to be pure. I will be morally right. I will be righteous in this world. I will be set aside for him. No, but when the sunflower looks at the sun, it doesn't reach up and grab all the rays and pull it down. It just looks. Another passage in Isaiah, the Lord says to his people, look to me, all the ends of the earth, and be saved. Look to the sun. And that is how we live in a way that we actively embrace purity in this life. Because we'll look to all sorts of other things to satisfy us, all sorts of other things to solve all of our problems, but we can only look to and completely trust in Christ. He's done the work at the cross. His work is finished. Our job is to grow, but we do not grow simply the reason a sunflower grows, right? Sunflower grows so that your garden can look pretty, right? And it's just kind of there, we're not meant to be just there. We're meant to go. We're meant to take this. It's as if, imagine, this is a creepy picture, but a sunflower growing legs and starting to walk down the street and tell you about his absorbing the energy of the sun. It would be radical. It would be insane. And that's what God calls us to. Be rooted deeply in Christ. Absorb the energy of <laughs> The energy sounds kind of weird to talk about energy when we talk about Christ, but, but be in relationship with him such that being in his presence transforms you more into his image. You know how this works because you become like the people you work with, the people you live with, the people on your street, the people that you spend the most time with. You become like them. And that's what God is calling us to do in this passage about abiding in him. And have confidence in that, brothers and sisters. Don't shrink back at the idea of his coming. Know that when he returns, we have every reason to be confident that this is going to be a joyful occasion. We need to remember simultaneously that great joy is just as immense in sorrow for those who do not know Christ. Those who have no idea who he is and can't even recognize us for what we are, confused by what Christians are and do in this society, we're meant to call them into this great and glorious salvation that we have in Christ and let Christ do what he's doing in us in them as well. 